Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. We had a great response on Giving Tuesday this past week, with more than $2,000 in donations, moving us closer to our year-end goal to raise $35,000. Thanks to all who donated to help ensure our coverage of national parks and protected areas will continue. It's not too late to contribute towards that goal, as donations through year-end will be matched dollar for dollar up to a total of $11,500. You can find a donate button at nationalparkstraveler.org. Our coverage last week included stories about the fastest hikers at Great Smoky Mountains National Park, a finalized visitor use plan at Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area to benefit both visitors and park resources, and word that the Trump administration was moving to weaken the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, even though we've lost billions of birds over the past 50 years. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. If you're a truly devoted National Parks Traveler, you don't let political boundaries get in your way when you consider which national park to visit. With that in mind, in this week's show, we're going to look north to Canada and the incredible national parks overseen by Parks Canada. There are some great destinations there, whether you're a young family traveling with kids, wildlife watchers in search of birds or bison, or more experienced travelers looking for a wild backcountry experience. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Wild Tribute is lifestyle apparel founded for our parks and public lands. We donate 4% of our proceeds to support America's most wild and historic places. This is our Wild Tribute. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. You can learn more at wildtribute.com. While it's true that the United States boasts more than 400 units of the national park system to explore, why stop there? Around the world, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other parks, preserves, and protected areas worthy of visiting. Perhaps, though, we should start with those in Canada. After all, Ignore the political boundaries of the United States and Canada, and you're looking at one huge landscape, North America, with a long roster of national parks and related areas worth exploring, whether you're looking for history, wildlife, culture, or backcountry adventure. Indeed, those boundaries already are blurred a bit in northern Montana, where Glacier National Park in the United States merges just a little bit with Waterton Lakes National Park in Alberta, Canada, to form Waterton Glacier International Peace Park. To take a somewhat quick look at the possibilities in Canada, we've asked Lee McAdam, a Calgary-based outdoor and adventure blogger at hikebiketravel.com, to join us. 
She has visited many of her country's national parks and has visited in all seasons, snowshoeing and cross-country skiing in winter and hiking and camping extensively in summer. Welcome to The Traveler, Lee. Thank you very much for having me, Kurt. So before we get into destinations, um, I I guess it should be pointed out that um, Parks Canada is actually a few years older than the United States Park Service. Just by a few. uh, What is it, about eight years difference? But that's one of the, you know, I don't I don't know who we can thank for doing that. But um, that's one of the major differences. I know you were asking about, you know, what are the big differences between the two agencies? And really, we everything else is pretty much the same. There aren't giant differences between the park services in Canada and the U.S., uh, except that I think your numbers are way higher than ours. Yeah, yeah. I, I forget exactly how many national parks you guys have. Is it? Well, we have, you know, it depends if you're counting national historic sites and the offshore, like the the seashore um, historic sites, but generally 43 for just the national parks, but Uh 80, I think, is what the number is if you're including everything else. 80. 80. But that's national, like, that's things like the Rideau Canal in Ottawa, which is a a national um, historic site. So it's like your Lincoln Memorials. And, you know, we we just have a mixture of, you know, the real natural areas and then the historical areas. And sometimes they're quite separate. Sure, sure. Now, when um, Americans uh, go into a Canadian national park, do they run into rangers or is it the Royal Mounted uh, Police? No, it would be rangers for sure. Uh, no Royal Mounted Police, RCMP is, is the short form for them. Um, we wouldn't see them unless there was a real problem, perhaps in the very far north, but the rest of the time, never, never. Is there a, a big movement to, to add units to the Parks Canada? I mean, you've got such a huge country and some incredible areas. I, I was reading last night, and I don't pretend to be any kind of expert on this, but they they do have a mandate to keep adding national parks across a variety of ecological zones. And it looks like they're probably about three quarters of the way there. And Mm -hmm. this is a very long-term view. So, you know, I did notice that they have a couple of new ones on the books. They're not fully approved yet, but, you know, every, probably every five years or so, there's a new national park that comes around and some of them are very small and some of them are in the North and hardly anyone is going to ever see them. But they're, they're certainly mandated to increase the number of national parks. I know here in the States, there's, there's always one um, contingent out there that wants to add more and more national parks and protected areas. And um, more recently, um, the, the 30 by 30 movement, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but uh, to protect 30% of the, of the globe in natural areas, that's kind of served as an impetus to perhaps increase the national park system here in the United States. Uh, have you heard anything similar in Canada? I really have not. And I don't know if, you know, the dollars make a big difference there. Uh, I, I do. I just know that they're really trying to cover all ecological zones and that they had had it broken down into various components that way. And they wanted a park to represent each one of those ecological components. Sure. And so that's what they're working towards. Yeah. Now, also, I guess one of the interesting aspects in, in, in Canada is you've got a lot of Indigenous communities. And, and so I, I've read of a few prospective um, additions to Parks Canada that has to deal with once the Indigenous community signs off on it or is compensated for it. Um, 
that's when the unit will be added? Um, you know, that one gets so tricky. They're trying to do more partnerships now. Uh-huh. Um, so rather than signing off, they're partners. And I think that's probably the way it's going to end up going. I don't think the Indigenous people, the Native people, want to be left out of the conversations anymore in sure. any way, shape, or form. Sure. So I think it's very much you know, mutual respect between the two trying to come up with the right solution. Yeah, yeah. No, no easy. Um, oh, it's not easy there. at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> now, now, one thing that's kind of interesting uh, to the visitor is um, the cost of getting into Canadian national parks versus the cost of getting into U.S. national parks. And there, there's uh, almost an annual battle over entrance fees to U.S. national parks, even though um, in the big picture, it's really pocket change when you're looking at a a, a week long or a two two week long um, vacation to to go to say Yellowstone and, and it might be you know fifty dollars for a, a week long pass and in Parks Canada it's it's quite a bit more expensive isn't it? Well it's interesting because for me to go to a US park, say Glacier National Park because that's close. I went last year and it cost me thirty five dollars US for a day pass. So if I went to Banff National Park, it would cost me about $10 Canadian per adult for a day pass. So from the day pass perspective, I think Canada is the better deal. However, as far as a um, like a parks pass that covers all the parks, I think you have the better deal there. Having said that, though, it's only just over $100 US for a, a parks pass, and that includes up to seven people in one car. And that's good for a year. And it's actually, if you're smart about it, and there's no reason you shouldn't be, if you bought it, let's say, January 1st, it would be good until January 31st the following year, so you could get 13 months out of it. Right, right. One of the interesting price points we have in the U.S. is if you're 62 or older, you can buy a lifetime pass. And once upon a time, that cost $50, and I, I think I paid $80 so I'm good for the rest of my life, unless I lose that. Unless I lose that pass, I have to buy it all over again. But there's a a lot of contention over, you know, is is the U.S. Um, park entrance fees are they equitable? I mean, we keep hearing about this twelve billion dollar maintenance backlog in the U.S. national parks, and uh, you know, how can we erase that? And and people say, well, geez, you know, the the entrance fees are, are so inexpensive. You know, we could boost those a little bit and really help out the parks. But then there's the argument about our taxpayers pay for the parks. Why should we have to pay twice? I think, you know, it's it's those user type of fees. And I think if you knew it was going to a good cause and you knew it was staying within the park, I think people feel differently about it then. Uh, I think if it just goes into general revenues for the whole government, it feels it doesn't feel like it's getting to where it needs to get to. And I don't know. You know, I don't know where our fees go. Like, I'm not an expert on that by any means. But I certainly know if I was paying for a um, a pass in Banff and it was going to go to infrastructure and I was going to have a lot nicer tent pads in the backcountry, I'd be really happy to do that. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of your users would probably feel very much the same way. The other note on pricing, and it doesn't make a huge difference if you're in a car with a bunch of adults anyway and you've bought a um, yearly pass, but kids 17 years of age and under are free right. uh, all the time. So there is no charge for that. Yeah, I think it's 16 and under in the in the U.S. And um, 
under the, the, the law, once upon a time, the entrance fees went to the general treasury, but more recently, um, 80% of the fee remains in the park where it's collected, and uh, the remaining 20% goes um, back to Washington to be um, redistributed to the parks that don't have entrance fee. And I think out of the, the 421 units of the national park system, I think it's only around 130 that um, actually charge an entrance fee. But one thing we are seeing um, because of the level of fees is that um, level of entrance fees is we're seeing more fees and more increased fees for other uses in the national parks, whether it's camping or whether it's a backcountry permit or what have you. Um, so they're going to find a way to charge you, whether it's you know a straight entrance fee or, or amenity fee, as they call it. Yeah, there's a, there's a way around it, isn't it? And we certainly get hit with the reservation fees. And those seem to add up if you're doing... Actually, they add up, but you can also get smart again with something like backcountry camping, and you can buy a seasonal pass that I think if you camp more than four nights out, um, it pays for itself. Right. So there are ways, but you're right. There's, you know, it's not just the entrance fees. It's all the other fees that you you get hit with. Right. Now, I, I've been fortunate um, to, to visit Canada uh, a handful of times, Um goes all the way back to when I was a youngster growing up in New Jersey and our Boy Scout troop went up to Algonquin Provincial Park and that was my first taste of Canada and uh, it was a week-long canoe trip really loved it had a great time that's um, a great place to start yeah yeah and in in more recently um, in this century <laughs> and late late in the last century um, I did making up to, to Banff and, and Kootenay National Parks and uh, I think I touched Jasper one thing that really struck me at Banff um, one afternoon or one day, my wife and I took a, a hike out from Lake Louise and um, visited some of the tea houses above Lake Louise. I know, we're really lucky to have those. So there's two of them that are a hike from Lake Louise. One of them is called the Plain of Six Glaciers. Right. That's um, a slightly longer hike than the other one. It's more like a three and a half mile hike. But my gosh, the scenery that you get into with that one, with glaciers right up close, uh, just magnificent mountain views is pretty phenomenal. Uh, that one, you know, both, let me backtrack, uh, both of those tea houses are open from the beginning of June until a Canadian Thanksgiving, which is usually the first, mon second Monday of October. Mm -hmm. And um, the one up at the Plain of Six Glaciers has been run by the same family since the late, um, since 1959, I believe. Wow. And, you know, they fly in their supplies once or twice a year, and then the rest are brought up by their staff um, as they hike up to the tea house, which is interesting. And they only take cash because there is no, um, there is no electricity up there, uh, which is interesting, too. And, and as I recall... Um they would go to the lake and, and scoop up a bucket of water for, for their tea and to make soups and stuff like that. Yeah, that was their water source. No, I wonder if that, so it would be like, there would be some streams around the Plain of Six Glaciers where they could do that. And the other tea house is the Lake Agnes Tea House. Mm -hmm. And they could certainly walk out the door there and grab, <laughs> grab a fresh bucket of water. And there's a little waterfall there. So it would be nicely aerated as well. Yeah. You know, both of them, are wildly scenic spots and really a gorgeous um, destinations at any time of the year, except that you really have to know how to travel through some avalanche train to to get to both of them in the in the depths of the winter. Uh, I was up at uh, the Plain of Six Glaciers in mid-October, 
and there was thigh deep snow there already. Wow. This past October. This past, like two months ago, six weeks ago. Wow. What, what's the history? Why did they decide to build those facilities? Uh, I honestly, you know, I know what the, I, I don't know why with the plain of six glaciers. I do know that with the uh, Lake Agnes Tea House, the first lady of our first prime minister was this woman, Agnes MacDonald, and she went up there and absolutely fell in love with the beauty of the area. You know, I'm not sure how it came to be. I just know that she is the driving or her name is associated with it. And it was, um, I know, I really can't say much more than that. I'm going to make a fool of myself. <laughs> so, so, but they, they date back to the, the mid 1950s. No, way earlier than that, like early 1900s, I believe. Oh. It's been around for a very long time. And I think it started off perhaps as a log structure and was rebuilt, but the windows have stayed the same. So it's mm-hmm. it's got a very, very long history. You know, it's interesting, uh, you being familiar with Glacier National Park in Montana as opposed to the one in Canada, once upon a time, the, the Great Northern Railroad had built a series of, I believe, nine backcountry chalets, as they called them, and they were designed uh, to be a, a day's horseback ride apart, and they would lead, um, you know, tourists on horseback uh, to go from chalet to chalet to chalet, and, you know, that's that was a, a great summer adventure, and unfortunately, almost all of those are gone today, and I, I would just think from time to time how wonderful it would be if they were still maintained and in place and you could do a, a backpack trek um, from chalet to chalet. It's kind of like what they have in Colorado with the 10th Mountain Division huts, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you can literally do that in the winter and ski from um, backcountry hut to backcountry hut. Yeah, a great adventure. Great way to see the country for sure. Wonderful way to see it. We do have some backcountry huts for sure run by the Alpine Club of Canada. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the ways of getting into the backcountry. And especially some of them are in very, very remote locations. So it certainly beats carrying a tent, even though they're very basic accommodations. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they have those in the, in Italy, in the, in the mountains there, the Dolmites. Exactly. Um, the New York Times just had a, a feature story on traveling hut to hut there. Now, unfortunately, um, we've got this uh, coronavirus pandemic going on that's really kind of locked down the borders. I know my wife and I were supposed to travel to uh, Nova Scotia um, last July to visit Cape Breton National Park, and we had to postpone that, um, hopefully, to July, July of 2021. We'll see if that comes off, but the point being, I guess, is that if you're a U.S. resident going to Canada, um, you have to start some of these trip planning far in advance. No, I know with getting to Cape Breton, it was kind of interesting. Um, basically, you can't get there from here. We have to fly from Salt Lake to Toronto to Halifax to to uh, Cape Breton, um, and it's no easy thing. And, and when we first um, made the reservations to visit, um, the airlines wouldn't take a reservation because it was too far out. But um, How far in advance do people need to start thinking about planning a Canadian national park vacation? If you're going to the popular national parks, less far out now than you used to, as far as campgrounds are concerned. 
airfares are a whole different set of um, questions, but let me just go to the campgrounds first. So normally up until 2021, up until this coming year, they have taken reservations starting on one day in January at eight o'clock in the morning. And so the system gets to, into over, over capacity mode in very short or, order mm. and people uh, are left there hanging with their visas not going through and completely frustrated. So this year, Parks Canada has rolled out a new system beginning in April, and every province and every park has a different day um, when you have access to the campgrounds. So like, as an example, Lake O'Hara um, is an absolutely drop-dead gorgeous area, probably one of the top places to go in all of Canada, and it's in Yoho National Park. And you need a little bit of lady luck on your side to get it. And you need to be able to hop on the phone at eight o'clock on the, <laughs> the day it opens and probably have a couple of devices going in order to get a, a reservation. Is it just this one, year, one day? Well, they'll sell out. They'll sell out in one day at, at Lake O'Hara. So, you know, anything that is For like the whole season. primo. <laughs> it's craziness. Like it is truly, it's like winning the lottery if you can get up to Lake O'Hara. And that's just, you know, just getting up there is another issue, which I'll tell you about in a second. So that is like, to me, Lake O'Hara is almost the worst case scenario in all of Canada because it's so beautiful and they only let so many people in there. So it's much harder to get into than the other places. And there isn't very much camping available. And it's a about a six mile hike into the campground. Hmm. So this year that should be a little bit better, but no matter where you go in the park system, I think you need to have, uh, you have to be flexible and you have to have other dates in your head for backcountry or front country camping because it's become so popular after co with COVID. I think it's just gone exponential, um, just like the virus these days in Alberta, quite frankly. Uh, so that's, it's going to be easier, but you have to jump on things for the popular ones. If it's not a popular park, if it's not well used, you've got a little more time. But, you know, I'd say get on there in April, start researching in January and February. Book hotels, if it's someplace like Banff and Lake Louise, uh, if it was a non-COVID year, they're usually 97% booked up in the summertime. So yeah. that means you have to have your act together well in advance of that or be prepared to drive a little bit further. Yeah, does that help a little bit? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Here in the states, we have uh, much the same, if not a worse, situation. Um, you know, the popular lodges in in Yellowstone or Yosemite or the Grand Canyon. You know, generally, you should start out you know six or seven months in advance um, planning. But one of the one of the catch twenty twos of that is is if you're that far out, you're gonna pay top dollar. Whereas if you wait till a month before your trip and you find an opening in a lodge, more than likely they've reduce the cost to try and sell that room if you know what i mean oh okay and then for backcountry makes... yeah um for backcountry camping um there's a system recreation.gov that has drawn all sorts of criticisms over how it's managed because of problems and and perceptions that you know some folks have figured out how to game the system and um we had a reader comment the other day that uh this one individual and this, this reader who was commenting had filed a FOIA Freedom of Information Act request for, for reservation data. And he had found one individual who time after time after time always got the cabin he wanted year after year after year. And in some cases, five times a summer. And so that led to a lot of uh, consternation, to say the least. 
Yeah. No kidding. We're, wow. We're but it is, it is, I, I just want to make um, one other comment. And that is the fact that there are an unbelievable number of cancellations too. Mm -hmm. And so some of these top areas, just like Lake, Lake O'Hara, if you are prepared to phone almost on a daily basis, pretty darn sure you can get a cancellation. And especially if the weather forecast looks crummy, then you've got a really good chance of a cancellation. And I did about I did five backpacking trips um, this past summer in Alberta and British Columbia, and I never had a problem getting a reservation. But I was really disappointed in the fact that people didn't cancel reservations if maybe if the weather got bad. So several times I had a campsite, my husband and I had a campsite entirely to ourselves. And I'm looking around thinking, I know there are people out there who would like to be here, yeah. but aren't because people didn't cancel it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an issue for sure. And they've, they've tweaked the recreation.gov um, process a little bit better. So if you know in advance you, you're not going to be able to make it, you can get a refund aside from a small a processing fee. But um, I, I had You can do that. do that here too, but it it seems that people aren't taking advantage of that. Yeah, well, that's unfortunate because, as you say, they, they've left uh, vacant campsites that other people could have enjoyed if they were aware of them. Yeah, exactly. We're talking today with Lee McAdam, a Calgary, Alberta-based outdoor and adventure blogger at hikebiketravel.com. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back to talk more about Canada's national parks. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org.
All right, we're back today with Lee McAdam, a Calgary-based outdoor and adventure blogger at hikebiketravel.com, talking about Parks Canada and Canada's uh, collection of national parks and protected areas. Lee, just off the top of your head, can you give us a handful of some of the, the the good or the best national parks for family travel? Say, you know, it's a, a young couple with, um, you know, tween age kids or, or maybe young uh, teenagers. Um, any, any parks stand out in your mind for best? Oh, I definitely have a couple of ideas for you there. I, I think beaches and families go very, very well together. And so if anyone could get out to the East Coast to Prince Edward Island, PEI National Park has 40 miles perhaps of beaches, red sandy beaches with warm water. Um, absolute heaven for red, red families. Sand. Red sand, yes. Um, glorious part of the uh, country to go and visit. And then also um, there's it's kind of fun to go and walk on the ocean floor in Fundy National Park. We have the world's largest tides there. Right. And so right. If, if you time it right, you can go back and forth and, you know, you're walking on this oozing red mud again with the, the red theme coming through. Interesting. Um, kids, yeah, very much so. And really just a, a very fun experience for families to go and do that. So, you know, both sides of the country have excellent beaches. New Brunswick also has a park that is hard to pronounce. It's called Kujibakujuak, and it's got uh, barrier islands and sand dunes and very warm water again, like surprisingly warm water for Canada. Hmm. And so it's another good destination. In the prairies, we have Prince Albert National Park. And um, I don't know if people sort of a lot of people don't think much of the prairies, but I think they're a very special part of uh, what we have to offer. And they're sandy beaches and lakes and perfect for swimming and boating and also lots of nature in that particular park. Uh, I've seen wolves there and bears and deer. So a good one for the family. And then if you go west to um, Vancouver Island, there's Pacific Rim National Park. Uh, and it's got three components to it, but one of them is this section of beach called Long Beach, again, about seven miles um, bordering the rainforest. So you've got, you know, you might be able to see a whale at certain times of the year. You can just walk and walk and walk. And uh, there's a little town called Tofino in there and, you know, go and pick up great food after you've been to the beach. So all of those are superb choices. But I'm also thinking there's a, there's two others I'd like to mention. One of them is Point Pelee National Park. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the southernmost point in Canada. And if you looked at a map, it would be the equivalent of Northern California. And it's a hotbed for birding, but it's also, right. um, it's got this great spit and uh, it uh, juts out into Lake Erie. I hope I've got that one right. I'm pretty sure I do. And um, beaches on either side. And again, just ideal for families. And if your kids are into reptiles, it's like a hot spot for reptiles. Really? I am, I, I am not into reptiles, but <laughs> there are lots of snakes there. <laughs> Tremendous number of snakes. And in September, it's got um, the monarch butterfly migration goes through that park, which would be fantastic for families to go and participate in. Yeah, yeah. Now we've had um, with with climate change or um, the recovery of uh, um, seal population, great white sharks um, seem to be moving farther north, and they've they've been a, a, an issue at Cape Cod National Seashore in recent summers. Um, really, I, I thought I heard that some were showing up outside of Nova Scotia. Are, are you aware of any of those issues? 
I am not. <laughs> I have heard of um, the Greenland shark in the Bay of Fundy, but like very, very rare. Yeah. But the great white chart, which just I said, think sends tremors of fear through um, individuals. You know, you know, I had no idea that it was throwing up that far north. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, something to watch out for for sure. <laughs> Good for tourism, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stay out of the water. <laughs> you might get eaten on this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next category, backcountry travelers. Now, I, I have to assume that there is just incredible parks for for going backcountry travel in Canada, oh, whether you're is. whether you're hiking or, or paddling. Um, it's pretty darn phenomenal. You know, the, there are some northern parks in Canada. There's, I think, thirteen parks in the far north. Uh, the problem with those parks, as beautiful as they may be, is that it is bloody expensive to get up there. And yeah. just the logistics yeah. are really hard unless you go with the tour company. So uh, there's one park that I went to a um, number of years ago, uh, and I always mess up. I cannot say, say the, the names of these parks for the life of me. Ayuatak. And I did a 12-day backcountry traverse up there past the largest vertical face in the world, um, which is called Mount Thor, a pretty impressive rock face. Hmm. Uh, so that one could, we went with a company, but you could do that one on your own with a lot of planning and a lot of help from the park's people because they do help you with the planning process there. But most people, you know, it's it's not a very popular park um, from the numbers perspective, even though it's a gorgeous park. As far as being able to drive to a northern park, Kluwani National Park in the Yukon is an excellent choice. And it looks into Alaska. Part of the park looks into Alaska. Um, huge number of mountain peaks. You can go and get lost in there if you want to get lost and not be seen or heard of for a week or two weeks at a time. But you really have to have pretty darn good navigation skills and be very comfortable traveling through bear country. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are not. So the numbers are, are fairly low on that one. Uh, you know, my my home park is Banff National Park because it's 75 minutes from my doorstep. Mm -hmm. And even though it's the busiest park in Canada, that's more the town site that's so busy. And as your experience probably has shown too, the minute you get a couple of miles down a trail, you tend to lose everybody. Yeah. And in Banff National Park, uh, there's got to be at least six or seven backcountry experiences you could have that, you know, three days to six days kind of thing. And really off the beaten track and just gorgeous. You know, I've had some of the best experiences in my life in Banff, um, very, very close to home. So I would never discount that one. And same with um, Jasper. Same, you know, it's it's a bigger park than Banff National Park. Mm. I would say it has mm, probably a couple less well-known long-distance trails, but there are some excellent ones in there. Um, in September, I did one called the Tonquin Valley, which gets you into this area of mountains called the Ramparts. And it's, um, here's a, you know, what we talked earlier about planning ahead of time. And this is a trail that you want to do in September because the bugs are so horrendous the rest of the year. Yeah. So everyone yeah. wants to go in that. There's a two-week period. And it's like, good luck. Because <laughs> wow. you really don't want to go in July unless you want to get eaten alive. Mm -hmm. um, I want to take you across to the other side of Canada to Newfoundland. And Gross Morne National Park mm -hmm. is completely awesome. I don't know if you've ever been to Newfoundland. 
but rugged, rugged terrain. And it's a place where you can actually walk on the Earth's mantle. Interestingly, there's a, a it's about a four day backcountry experience. It's called the Long Range Traverse. And it's the only trail in Canada where you have to take a navigation test. And really? if you yeah, and if you flunk it, you're not going. Yeah. <laughs> Even with what? all the electronic uh, GPS units you have today, you have to take a test. You still have to be able to read a map and a compass. And you can take your GPS with you, and that's not a bad idea. So there are no – it is not a, a marked trail in any sense of the world. There's lots of um, tracks, animal tracks in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an interesting story when we were talking to one of the rangers – and everyone is given a spot so that, you know, if you are in serious difficulty, you pull the plug and the helicopter will be there. And you can't put that plug in after you've pulled it. So it has to be pretty darn serious. Yeah. So one one gentleman pulled the plug and the helicopter showed up and um, they go, well, what's the issue? Well, he saw a moose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they go, well, you know, if you see a moose, don't pull the plug. That's really that's really not part of the deal. So that is an excellent um, experience to have. And, you know, big fjords, lots of moose, black bear, lots of animals on that one, but glorious scenery. That so those, wonderful. Oh, that one is particularly wonderful. So those would be some of my top choices. Yeah. And certainly, um, backtracking a little bit, um, being able to, to read a map and, and use a handheld compass are, are great skills to have. Um, you never know when your batteries are going to die on you. Well, and it's interesting because I really, I don't have any apps on my phone for hiking. And I was with a a younger couple this summer and we were hiking and, you know, they could pinpoint exactly where we were on the map. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel like I have that broader picture in my mind. I know exactly where I am, but not really where I am. I I feel like I've lost something. It's like being on Google Maps. I don't have the big picture. I have the little picture, but not the big picture. And uh, I'm more old school. I want to know exactly where I am. Absolutely, I, but, I agree. But and I think there's a, a real, a lost art to map reading, and people don't know how to do it very well. No, no, that's that's for sure. And I've got a, a couple books on orienteering that um, I have to um, refresh myself from time to time. Um, now, wildlife watching. I mean, you've already mentioned a hand, a handful of parks that are great for seeing animals out in the parks, or even monarch butterflies. Wood Buffalo National Park comes to mind for me. Um, I've got this thing about bison. They're really interesting. And wolves are really interesting. And you can see a lot of those dynamics at Wood Buffalo, I believe. And and it's also uh, uh, a breeding grounds for, for migratory birds, no? It is for the cranes. The, right. I think it's the whooping cranes, the endangered whooping cranes. Right. So it, I was that was really one of the ones at the top of my list as far as wildlife is concerned. Um, 5,000 buffalo is what they're supposed to have, and they're free-roaming buffalo, which is mm-hmm. not what you get in Elk Island National Park, which is um, just east of Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And they have a much smaller herd there, but it's actually an enclosed park. It's got fences around it. On the other hand, it's got also a lot of elk and deer and moose. So if you like ungulates, it's a good place to go. Elk Island. Um, yeah, Elk Island National Park. It's just a little park. It's like a 45-minute drive from Edmonton, and uh, it's it's a delightful spot to go and visit, and, and a delightful spot year-round, and I just about can guarantee that you'll see some bison, which is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, you know, like Banff National Park, for all the times I've been there, I think I've seen a bear twice. I've seen a moose twice, <laughs> a bunch of deer, and some elk, but I've never seen a lot of animals in 
um, Banff National Park. So, yeah, I think if I went, uh, if you go up to Jasper, you're much more likely to see wild animals for whatever reason. You get a little bit, uh, you get some caribou up in Jasper, which is mm. not something you usually see in, in Banff. But the one park that really is a standout for wildlife, apart from some of the northern parks that I don't pretend to know enough about, um, like some of them are known for musk oxen, absolutely mm -hmm. um, huge concentrations of, of those animals. But uh, Guayhanas National Park in Haida Gwaii, uh, phenomenal number of whales. Like I think there's 10 different types of whales and porpoises and dolphins. And if you went in, say, May and June, you can see hundreds of whales at a time. And where, where is this? Which, which province is this? This is British Columbia. Okay. Uh, this is close to Alaska, and they used to be called the Queen Charlotte Islands. Okay. So there are two. It's a two-hour um, flight north of Vancouver, and then a two to four-hour boat ride to get down to the park. Wow. And it's really only accessible by boat or by seaplane. In that park, there's something called the Burnaby Narrows. If you happen to be kayaking or boating, and it's just a one kilometer. So what's that? Point six mile long stretch of water. And if you catch it at low tide, it is absolutely unbelievable, uh, just filled with organisms. And someone, there is a quote out there that says it's got more protein per square centimeter than anywhere else in the world, in the world. That's so amazing. amazingly rich tidal zone. But um, most people aren't looking for the little stuff. They want the bears. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, one thing um, we've witnessed here in the States um, this summer of COVID is um, incredible crowds heading out to, to national parks and other public lands and state parks and state forests. Have you seen the same thing in Canada? Absolutely. And and so many first-time people out there that who obviously have never heard of Leave No Trace principles. <laughs> yeah, we've <laughs> and heard especially, about that. <laughs> yeah, and especially when it comes to camping, you know, they just... I, I have heard absolute horror stories about people chopping down trees in the parks to make campfires, like just awful, awful stuff. So, yes, that's an issue. And education is going to have to be right up there on the agenda of parks people to make sure these people learn a little bit more before they start um, destroying things. Yeah, and I guess another part of the problem is that, um, as you, you mentioned, a lot of them are unexperienced. And in many cases, today's technology is almost light years ahead, um, and that's just a little bit of a hyperbole there, ahead of people's skills. And so we've run into people who, you know, they get far back into the backcountry because of the technology of backcountry skis, or they feel well, I've got my my spot locator device um, so I can, you know, summon help whenever I need to. And that leads to more and more issues with uh, the need for search and rescue. And I don't, I don't know if you've seen that in Canada yet. Oh, I, I think in some places that is, you know... I'm not sure so much in national parks. I, I mean, I know in the North Shore of Vancouver, that's always an issue. Search and rescue, people think that they they know a lot more than they actually do and get into really awful topography very quickly and need some help. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I am not aware um, this past summer, I didn't hear stories in the media about more search and rescue, but I have no doubt that there was a little bit more of it going on. I did hear... Uh, what I did here is more inexperienced people climbing mountains that were out of their, not their comfort range, out of their, what's the word, um, 
their ability well above their level so one of the hikes um and it's just before you reach banff national park um someone was killed one day and that same day there was a a massive injury and somebody else on that one and uh, although it wasn't a national park it was a mountain and people just going out thinking that they don't have to be prepared that they don't need a skill set that just you know they see the pictures they've seen instagrams like i can do that and then they get themselves into trouble exactly exactly Well, Lee, thanks so much for joining us today and giving us a a small taste of uh, the national park possibilities in Canada. It just sounds like such a a rich uh, reservoir of natural areas and cultural areas to to really investigate. And um, that's one reason I want to rush to retirement so I can get out on the road and explore more of these places. (laughs) Well, hopefully you can come up to Canada and see some of um, our wild parks and, you know, even head up to the Arctic. There's one park I... I would just like to to mention at the very end, and it's called Ivovik up in the northwest corner of the Yukon. And you know how many people can get up in, above the Arctic Circle and have a base camp experience where you've got a guide and a cook, and you can see caribou. You might even see thirty thousand caribou if you got really lucky. Wow. So there are there are some pretty amazing experiences to have in Canada in the national parks, as there are in the U.S. But I, I feel lucky to have been to so many of them. Yeah, it sounds great. It sounds great. Well, Lee, we'll have to catch up down the road and and maybe take an adventure into one of your national parks with you. I hope so. Thank you very much, Kurt. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Thanks for tuning in. As always, if you have any suggestions for future shows, you can reach us at news at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.